It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. The True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show. And today we are going back to the Gears Guide to Japanese Wrestling after the sad passing of Road Warrior Animal. We thought it was appropriate about the Road Warriors in Japan and their stints in all Japan Pro Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling and Super World Sports Wrestling. We say stints in Super World Sports, it's more or less one match, which we looked at before, but we'll do it again. Anywho, to join me on this journey into the rush, if you will see what I did there, is Mr. John Dinsdale, Steel Chair Magazine. How are you, mate? I am pretty good. I nearly dropped my mic, but I, I just pulled off the most ninja-esque catch I think I'll ever do, and I'm never going to be able to replicate it. <laughs> okay, so New J- well, Japan and the Road Warriors kind of go together like peaches and cream, or mullets and face paint, if you will. Sorry, mohawks and face paint. And they were kind of made for each other, really. Now, if you know the history of the Road Warriors, you'll know that they started off uh, training together in Minneapolis whilst they were bouncers, and then going down to Georgia and wrestling for Ollie Anderson, and then all over the U.S. territories. And it wasn't before long that a Japanese promoter was going to take them on, and that would be Giant Baba. Now, you've watched plenty of Road Warriors in the early 80s, John. What were they like back then? See, the Road Warriors kind of exemplified what you could kind of call American Strong Style. It was very traditional, it was very hard-hitting, and um, they basically hurt a lot of people in the ring. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Until, you know, Tokyo. Which basically made them perfect for Japan because they were all about that. It's like, hey, we want people to hit each other really hard. We want them to be able to take a beating, give a beating, and look good doing it. Well, we've got these two giant guys who are very fast, very strong, and look very intimidating. How would you like them? Send them over. (laughs) And of course, that promoter would be one giant Baba. Now, Baba, as we've much discussed on this program all japan pro wrestling had its ups and it had its downs and in the early 80s it was certainly on a downward stretch but by the mid 80s it started to pick up again and that's where we joined the road warriors in all japan pro wrestling i've done a playlist which will tack on as per usual to the uh the the show uh, tweets and social media and stuff uh, and it starts with the absolutely glorious all japan pro wrestling debut vignettes of the road warriors which tell the story of a meteorite and uh two monsters landing somewhere in suburban chicago as it flew across the world with stock footage of london and new york uh where they land and are coaxed into semi-coherency by a raw chicken proffered by precious paul ellering this is by far the worst vignette I've ever seen in my life. But what apparently, what about this was amazing. It this was amazing. Like it was directed by Saban no, TV. I will agree with you. It was amazing, but not in the way we normally associate amazing with amazing. This this might have been one of the most Japanese things I've ever seen. As I, it felt like it was directed by Saban. Like, I felt like they were debuting two either Sentai or Power Rangers monsters, not wrestlers. I was in fits at this. It was. It's absolutely ludicrous. 
the fact that these two alien monsters land and one of them is wearing a Riberia, Riber, Riberia jacket is one thing. <laughs> it's, it's just like you, you don't know what the hell to make of it because you're like, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. We're supposed to believe the road warriors are space aliens. What? Well, they are from Minnesota. Yeah, but that, that, that's not <laughs> quite as alien as I think Japan were going for here. No, no true um but yeah no this was uh just this was beautiful <laughs> just fucking wow anyway um so that was their debut and obviously paul ellering who genuinely was their manager he wasn't just a ringside manager he took all their bookings negotiated their contracts with different companies and made sure they were looked after ringside and was one of the smartest wrestling brains in professional wrestling at the time bit of a fitness freak, a body man in his own right, and a pretty good professional wrestler by his, by his own stretch of the imagination. He was just the right guy for the Road Warriors. And of course, they take him with him to Japan. Now, our first match on our playlist is kind of a bit of a classic. The Funk Brothers versus the Road Warriors. A match where no one's really prepared to sell anything. Uh, you say <laughs> that, but I think it, it, it's just Terry Funk's natural state to sell everything like he's just been hit by a car. True, true. And Dory kind of like, you can see like the exasperation in Dory's face. This is watching this unfurl before. I'm like, okay, right, what are we going to do now? Because um, <laughs> this isn't really Dory's thing. Dory likes a good old-fashioned wrestling match. Even in his 70s, he's probably a better technical wrestler than most people in the WWE roster. And he likes a good arm bar. And this really, you can see it's really not his speed, is it? No, but then they expect him to be the hot tag. That was the bit that cracked me up the most. It's like, <laughs> Funk finally gets to his corner. Dory comes in and he's just there. Like He's smaller than Funk, beating up two huge behemoths of people. And it's, it's like, don't get me wrong, if you want to establish the Road Warriors as, as this dominant powerhouse team, you definitely put them against the Funks. Because... My God, there's a fucking size disparage. Yeah, they are. I mean, like, Terry and Dory, both former NWA World Heavyweight Champions and both as hard as nails, are not small men by any stretch of the imagination. You're talking six foot tall and 260 pounds each. And but it takes... They still look like children compared to the Road Warriors, which is just almost comedic in its own right. Yes. Uh, we, you, one would suggest that the Road Warriors had made several trips to the pharmacy at this point. Allegedly. So, allegedly, <laughs> but certainly spent a lot of time in the gym. Uh, Manubu Nakanishi was actually taught the Road Warriors uh, workout. That's the reason why he's the size he is. <laughs> Just continuous eating and lifting weights. That's all Nakanishi does. Um, now retired, of course, but yeah, he was old lumpy. He was a protege of the Road Warriors in his New Japan day, early New Japan days. But yeah, this match, it does rollicker wrong at a fair old pace, though. Yeah, it was really damn fun to watch. It was. It was really very cool. And does end up with a double countout, which is a pattern one will see again and again as they try and protect their drop draws as best they can. Yeah, it's a that was slightly disappointing because I was like, okay, this is this is gonna have a definitive. Ah, oh, no, I've all been counted out. Oh, well, that that kind of sucks. 
Yeah, that's, I, that's my favorite thing from a lot of these matches is just watching the refs try to avoid getting knocked over. Yeah, yeah, they just kind of like the refs kind of got in the way, really. <laughs> they like were the, damage. The Road Warriors are, for all intents and purposes, one of the sort of fastest tag teams within like their time period. So I suppose the rest are just having a hard time keeping up because they're probably used to a lot more sort of slow and plodding people. Where it's like, right, we just got to duck to the side here, get out of the way. Oh, God, this massive man is charging at me. What am I to do? <laughs> oh, dear. We'll move on to the next one because there's not an awful lot to say. It was a good match and you should watch it. It's kind of a classic example of how to protect your big stars whilst getting somebody else over at the same time. Basically. It's, like um, they, it's, it's almost like they filled the ring with professionals who knew what they were doing and booked it smartly. Nobody, yes. nobody lost face because of it. Yes, remarkable that. <laughs> the next show was a Road Warriors special from the 21st of June 1986, looking at the spring tour the Road Warriors did. By this point, they were already gone. I think they'd gone to the AWA, I think, by this point. And were considered one of the best tag teams in wrestling at the time. They'd certainly made their name nationally in the States. And were starting to build a big reputation in Japan. Um, and we got to hear some of Hawk and Animal's promos on this one. Which, quite frankly, were ludicrous. And you understand why Paul Ellering did most of the talking. Yeah, that, that's, it's not the best. But <laughs> when you look like that, you don't really need to get along on speech. <clears throat> no, true. One of my favorite promos from this particular period of time was uh, you take all the fights you've ever been in and then add 500 and then times it by 10 and then take it to the power of two and that's how tough it is to fight the Road Warriors. And that was Hawk. I can't do the Hawk voice. But... I swear that, that just sounds like Steinema before Steinema. Oh yeah, they were ahead of their time. And I will point out, Hawk had a very stylish pair of cowboy boots. And and very tight blue jeans. I I couldn't get over the fact that the first thing I saw was like the little introduction thing, and this documentary was sponsored by Nissan and Namco. I was there like, what? And a couple of geishas who were about to disrobe before the show started, and then just went, show. Uh, first match on this. Come on. Sorry, Karen. I was just making a very bad joke. <laughs> yeah, this is it. This is the big adverts for the 1980s Nissan Skyline, the first generation was given Nissan Skyline. It's like yeah, that that was that was such a dramatic advert for for what basically amounts to just another car. It's, it's a very lush advert. To be fair, the Nissan Skyline at the time was kind of a revolutionary car in Japanese car making. It was like a proper proper sports car. But I can understand to a non-car person. Not that I am a car person. Um, to a non-car person, it, it, yeah, <laughs> it's just a car. That car went very, very fast. And then there was this weird advert for sort of like pop-up horns. Yeah. Which, well, yes. Which cut off halfway through just as I was getting invested in it. I'm like, okay, how far can we build these things? Is it just it's... a case of it's like gigantic housing Lego? <laughs> <laughs> this is uploaded by Roy Lucier, by the way. Uh, fairly notable uh, uploader of wrestling down the years who has apparently blocked everybody on Twitter which is a bit weird. Like he blocked me and I don't quite understand why after I followed him and then he blocked a bunch of other people of 
people that I follow as well, which is very strange. But there you go. It's his choice. Maybe he just likes his privacy. Very strange. Perhaps he does. Um, the matches themselves feature highlight clips with the big tag teams of the time, uh, Ricky Chosu and some other poor unfortunate. Um, you should and, see the full match of later. Yeah, and the probably the big match that you'll see a rematch for later is Genichiro Tenru versus Genichiro Tenru and Jumbo Saruta versus Road Warriors, which is the the highlights of this set up the big match that they have later. Plus, there and was a match with a uh, Barber himself. Then, sorry, I'm pretty sure there's a match with Barber himself. Yes, that's oh, the next one. The thing I believe. Um, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, yeah, there he is. Yeah. Eight minutes, 40 yard. He's just beating up both of them. Up, oh, nope. Now Hawk's chopping the hell out of him. Oh. And yeah, Baba going up for the body slam as well. I mean, the whole Road Warrior set is there, isn't it? Body slams and fist drops and clotheslines off the middle rope. They're it, not. Okay. It all fits perfectly within all Japan. Of yeah. every like the Japan the Japanese promotions they were working for because that was the style back then. It was very, very hard hitting, very dramatic, very well not simplistic, but it was it was substance over style, and that's kind of what the Road Warriors were when it came to wrestling because they had yeah. the style and the aesthetics and the sort of substance in what they did. And we are talking pre. King's Road, All Japan Pro Wrestling. This is where Baba's formulating his ideas for the booking style that will make him literally make him a fortune. Um, but we're in big halls. We're in Raigoku. We're in Sumo Hall. We're in um, Budokan as well. Um, All They're Japan small crowds. No, All Japan did big houses. They had the the kind of cachet that the JWA did in the fifties and the sixties. They were the, they were kind of considered. I would consider them more of a follow on because Antonio Inoki was trying to do something different with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Was All Japan was always the conservative option. It was a traditional wrestling company, um, and that's really where it came from. Obviously, Baba's not taking the fall in this match. <laughs> oh God, no! And we're going to finish with a power slam off the top rope. Pudding. There you go. I enjoyed the sort of like in-depth look this documentary set as well because you obviously see sort of the things that go into making the Road Warriors characters as well, like how the face paint's done, how they like what they, how they work out, how Ellering sort of handles things. It's it's like very in-depth, almost like. Considering we were originally meant to believe they were alien monsters, <laughs> they've done quite a good job of making them human here. Yeah, definitely. The perhaps the 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 best one a match on this particular thing is is again Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru. And you forget how good Jumbo Saruta was, and Tenru for that matter. You know, they were red hot at the time. They were the they were Baba's chosen boys, they were the baby faces and gonna be the big baby faces of the company over the next five or so years. And this is a red hot tag match with Tenaru and Saruta really. Oh, one hundred percent. It's like for all the wars the company was facing, some of the matches you got out of them, bloody hell. 
yeah. I mean, Saruta would go on to be AWA World Heavyweight Champion in the next couple of years, as well as winning every belt in New- in all Japan and really prepping the four pillars of heaven, the Teyu, uh, Kawada, Misawa, Kabashi for the big time. Of course, Tenru would go on to found Super World Sports, which would become war and build his own legend outside the company. But, you know, everything's here. They're young guys, but they're really showing a lot of fire. And, you know, this is proper fiery baby face wrestling of the North American ilk, which is what all Japan did better than anyone else at the time in Japan. I don't think I can sum that off any better, to be honest. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, but also, it's very... You can see where the King's Road style is coming from, and you were right to say that. It's very spot-led, it's story-based, and though All Japan would kind of get real rid of the heel and face dynamic, there were just guys who had wrestling matches and some had nice personalities and some didn't, there was a lot of story-based in this style of wrestling. Well, it's like I've just skipped ahead a bit to this, like to here and um, uh, Saruta's just escaped and is basic with a like a massive backdrop on Hawk and now someone's just run in and is just like proper throwing Hawk around, which is something you wouldn't normally see. But again, just hot tags done well. Yeah, that's it. If you build the tension, it's got to release somewhere, and that's the important thing. Then there's some footage of uh, them, uh, Lord James Blears training some wrestlers. Um, and uh, some footage of AWA in Las Vegas in the early 80s uh, as the Road Warriors destroy poor, unsuspecting young rookies. Um, and then we go back to All Japan. And I'm trying to see who that is wrestling. They recognize him from somewhere, and I can't figure out who it is. See, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help here. I, I suck at recognizing... I reckon it was the guy who was Lee Booker for FMW in the late 90s, and I can't remember, remember his name. Fuyuki. Yeah, it'd be Fuyuki. He oh, was possibly. The, yeah, he was a tag wrestler. with He tagged with uh, Ghetto and Jeddo in war for a long time, and then all three of them went to uh, FMW when Anita was... Deployed. Oh, God, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just clicked the second you said it. I was just like, oh, God, it totally is. The blue in the blue. Yeah. Yeah, Price wrestlers really did get around everywhere back in like the nineties, eighties and nineties, didn't they? Well, Fuyuki was always kind of like the lovable loser in all Japan. He was, he was much beloved by the fans and not much beloved by anybody else. So when Tenryu offered him a shot in SWS, he was like, "Yes, I will go and be a bigger star." And then wasn't quite really. And then when someone said, "Why don't you be our lead heel in FMW?" He was like, "Yes, of course I shall do that." Um, but even then, it's like Ricky Chosu and I can't remember. I can't see who Chosu's tag partner is. This is for the All Japan Tag Team Championships. Um, for the uh, All Asian Tag Team Championships. I'd have to look it up to find out who it was. But let's have a chat about that one. Do you want to talk about that one? I'll look things up. But it's Chosu and somebody who will find out shortly. Um, oh, Chosu's literally just going ham on bloody animal. Bloody hell. Yeah, this is proper, proper fiery sort of, okay, these guys are the monsters. I'm going to basically smash them up as much as I can whilst I've got the sort of energy to. And okay, yeah, this is 
this is that match I was on about where I said, oh, I've skipped ahead slightly and um, Hawks being thrown around. Is Ricky yeah. Josie who's just dropped him on his head with a backdrop. <laughs> oh. But again, it's it's more of what you've come to know from the Road Warriors. This is them sort of laying... Was this, this was pre-WWF, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. I can never remember dates probably. But yeah, this is where you can see them setting up what they would become famous for in the WWF. The sort of aesthetics, the style, the attitude. It's all here. But yeah. obviously more tailored towards the Japanese audience. And it works perfectly. And oh god, I think Hawks just lost a tooth. <laughs> Again, it feels weird saying that because like this is this is basically a mountain walking in the ring with a really weird haircut. I never understood, but like, who was that? Hawk. <laughs> I never understood his haircut. Well, the idea was um, if they Hawk had this. Double mohawk and animal had the single mohawk, so they could plug each other, plug into each other if they needed to. <laughs> I always thought it was just the fact that Hawk had an accident with a shaver once and never recovered. No, no, it was actually it was, that was the reason why. I'm just trying to find uh, NWA. It would be the NWA International Tag Team Championships, I think. Chosu um, and. Uh... Again, this, he's got one of those faces I recognise, but I would never be able to tell you the name. Yoshiaki Yatsu, that's who it'd be. Yeah, I'd have never been able to remember that name. No, we have talked about him before. Yeah, Yoshiaki Yatsu and uh, Ricky Chosu, how they were part of the invasion angle into All Japan Pro Wrestling from New Japan, which wasn't really an All Japan thing. It wasn't really a New Japan invasion. It was just like they had too many wrestlers and they had to let some people go. So they decided to set themselves up in another company that was going to do a big invasion angle. And then all Japan gave them more money. So New Japan went, all right, then it'll be cheaper. <laughs> I only found out by, by, by reading a translation of a, a shoot interview between Keiji Muto and Masachono a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, Speaking of things we've talked about before, thought of making resurgences. Um, Mararu Fujita is the current uh, BJW Deathmatch Heavyweight Champion. He won his first defense with Mr. Pogo's sickle. Yeah. Like yeah. The, actual, the actual Mr. Pogo's sickle. Oh. He, um, he was against Messiah Takahashi and um, yeah, he literally hung him over the ropes with the, <laughs> the chain. It I only saw it because um, Yahoo Sports were talking about it. And I was just like, oh my god, that's Mr. Pogo's sickle. <laughs> and everyone's sort of like, oh cool, it's a big deal. And then nobody remembers that like Vegeta was actually in BJW when Pogo was at his greatest. Oh, there you go. That's true. But yeah, sorry. I, I just remembered seeing that yesterday and I was like, this was that was so cool. That got the world talking at BJW. Um, back in getting back to this match, uh, the Road Warriors obviously did not win this title match because uh, they would end up beating Genichiro Tenno and Jumbo Ruta for it later the following year, which I think is the next match on this list, actually. Uh, uh, so. Yeah, 
kind of spoiled the ending for you there. But we'll go to the next match on the list, which was... Uh, I had difficulty watching parts of this, because there was a lot of um, technical glitches on the recording. There was, yeah. You might have to skip along a little bit to get it right. But yeah, this was for the NWA International Tag Team Championship. Should I explain how the Tag Team Championships worked in New J- in all Japan? There was the NWA International Tag Team Championship, which was founded back in the 1960s in the JWA. The first Tag Team Champions were the Fabulous Kangaroos, champions on arrival, as always, with the Fabulous Kangaroos. Um, <laughs> they just turned up and they were the champs. And then there was the PWF Tag Team Championships. They were merged to produce the World Tag Team Championships, and it was the only World Championship All Japan have ever uh, promoted. Well, then. There you go, you see. Um, in fact, here we go. There's this. In 1988, the unification of the two previous tag titles in All Japan, the PWF Tag Team Championship and the NWA International Tag Team Championship, when the PWF champions Jumbo Saruta and Yoshiaki Yatsu defeated the NWA champions, the Road Warriors, as the Triple Crown is symbolized by four belts, two for each wrestler representing the form PWF and NWA titles, and currently the top tag team title in AJPW, along with the All Asian Tag Team Championship, which was the secondary tag team championship. All Japan have always had a, an affinity for tag wrestling as well. I think that's another reason why the Road Warriors did so well there. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, really, it does. Um, so, yeah, so you've got Road Warrior Hawk and um, Animal versus Jumbo Saruta and Jenichiro Tenru in an incredibly short match, to be honest with you. Oh, we, uh, have, we have managed to skip one. In the playlist, it's um, the next match is Hawk and Animal versus Jumbo Saruta and John Tenter. Oh, yes. I do apologize. That's the reason why it's short. Yeah, this would have been a precursor match to give Tenru some time in the ring with the Road Warriors, but not be a title match like New Japan do these days. By the way, John Tenter is Earthquake from the WWE. That John Tenter. And funnily enough, there is a natural disasters match later in the playlist. Yes, they would, they would tangle. Uh, once again in Tokyo uh, this is at Sumo Hall and John Tenter in his younger days could go couldn't he he was really quite good it's like, I think my favourite bit from this match is the drop kickoff between Hawk and Tenter yeah it's, it's really surprising how like athletic men their size could be because <laughs> they're both huge so just like really tall people so you just think God, that must take so much effort. To... Oh, they've got the shoulder pads in this match. Yeah, this was they would be in the NWA by this point, I would think, or certainly the later run of their AWA um, run. Uh, and yeah, this was uh, these were the days, wasn't it? This is where they they started started wearing the the spiked pads, and uh, this would be you know to Dusty Rhodes' detriment in the end. <laughs> Well, yeah, everyone in this match is, like, way more athletic than you'd, ex- like, expect for people of their size. Which, yeah. again, I suppose was always sort of part of the the charm of Japanese wrestling and certain American promotions where you'd see these really tall, buff guys and you'd just be like, right, they're, they're just going to do generic big man stuff. And then all of a sudden, oh, my God, he's just, like, 10 feet in the air and kicked his head off. What the... <laughs> Hawk was incredibly athletic. I mean, Animal was kind of the ground and pound guy, but Hawk could do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, the, this is the thing everyone sort of forget. It's like Hawk was the sort of one of the prototype 
athletic big men. Because he was, like, freakishly athletic. He just didn't really show it as often because he wanted to fit the sort of Road Warrior style of animal. Yeah. That's what I think. It's pro- I'm probably wrong, but... Oh, no, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's it's kind of like, if you look at the tag teams of the 80s, there was kind of a formula of the big guy and the tech guy. So you had Davy Boy Smith was the big guy and the Dynamite Kid was the technical guy and Jim Neidhart was the big guy and Bret Hart was the technical guy. And kind of with Road Warriors, Animal was the guy that did the meat and the potatoes of the weakening of things and Hawk was the finish man. That was... Hawk. You can't really say Hawk was the tech guy. He was the wild card. Like, <laughs> he'd come in, he'd be flying around with these massive leaping forearms, leaping elbows, leaping shoulder blocks. Just He was the sort of... You had Animal doing the heavy lifting and then you had like Hawk being the sort of razzle-dazzle, right? We're going to stun the people now with what you can do. Yeah, it was a very unique approach. And, and it's all about intimidation as well. You know, this, they're, they're purely a tag team about intimidation. The size of them, you know, the, the actual athleticism that they have. The their... horror stories of taking bumps from them. Yeah, it, they, well, as bad as the Steiners, um, you you do hear some horror stories. Yes, they weren't that bad, and they did calm down an awful lot when, after an early run in the AWA, Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens had a conversation with them in the ring, which lasted about thirty minutes, and then they calmed down a fair bit. Um, <laughs> but, you can tell that they put a lot of thought into the matches they had, because. Yeah. For all the sort of intimidating and scary nature of them, they did still act like professionals. Yeah, they I mean, never the sort of unfair, right? We're going to show everything you get this piddly bit of time type of tag team. No, this this could easily become Bruiser Brody in a bad mood, couldn't it? It could, but it never it never seems to, and like for all the sort of issues, like Hawk would have later down the line. They're never present in his wrestling. No, never ever. He's absolutely hundred percent professional. I Tenta is just. I'm just watching this. This these moves with Tenta and his ragdolling Hulk about. Yeah. He, just, he was a retired sumo at this point. It got quite well in sumo actually, and was a genuine tough guy, and yeah. very athletic for the size of him. Yeah, it's it's quite weird because here in this match he looks way more sort of slimmed down than he does in the natural disasters match. Yeah, he well, I'm guessing Vince wanted him to pack the weight on to make look himself look even more impressive and experiment to see how far he could go without losing any athleticism because he could actually go. He was he wasn't a cardio machine by any stretch of the imagination, but he could actually wrestle quite well. Again, much like some of the other sort of big guys that went over ch- to Japan, you sort of saw what they were capable of. It was the same with, oh, I've forgotten his name, Gary Albright. Yeah, yeah. Suplex machine. Just, you look at him, you wouldn't expect half the things he could do. It's the same with John Tenta. It's, Japan brings out the best in people a lot of the time. It does. It gives them a different side because they can do things more freely and do different things. I mean, like John Tenter, I think we've talked about John Tenter before because after between WWE and WCW runs, he was in that War Six Man yeah. Tag Tournament, wasn't he? And he With was 
suitors. <laughs> he was having fun just throwing people around. Yeah, that was it. Um, Hawking, even... trying, trying a proper right leg bar. That's interesting. Carry on, sorry. Bloody hell, that's that's kind of creepy. We're at the exact same moment. No, oh, right, there you go. He's going for that really awkward double leg Boston crab. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's just going to sort of add on to my um, Japan brings out the best in people sort of things. Even the human hot dog of racism himself, Hulk Hogan, had some absolutely amazing matches in Japan and showed like way more wrestling ability than the WWF ever let him do. Yeah, and but it's kind of expectation as well. You know, as well with Hogan, is is like the, the expands expectation is to actually have a wrestling match. He noticed that when he wrestled in WCW for the first time. He actually did some wrestling holds and fans lapped it up. They were like, oh, I should do more of this when he was wrestling Ric Flair because he was kind of like, oh, Hogan can't wrestle. He's just a brawler. And then he busts out a, uh, a short arm scissors and a cross arm lock and all of a sudden he's like Lou Fez. But it yeah, just shows. It's kind of funny that you can sort of even point back this far and just go, yeah, WWF kind of held people back. I don't think they held people back. It just wasn't what the audience expectation was. Jesus you know, Christ, that was a rocket launcher. <laughs> and that clothesline on Tenru at the end. Yeah, that that was snug. <laughs> just demolished him. I think Jennifer, uh, not Tenru, Sarut, I think Jumbo was trying it on a bit, to be honest, and trying to get across there at that speed. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I disagree with you that, that WWE held people back at this point just because it wasn't the expectation of the style. And a lot of it came from Vince Sr. Like Andre the Giant was a very proficient technical wrestler in his youth. But it was Vince Sr. who told him, don't do that. You don't need to do that. You're a giant. Just be a giant. Do gianty type things. And one of the reasons why um, Andre liked wrestling in Japan was because he did get to wrestle a bit more. He did get to put on arm bars and you know do non gianty stuff. Um, but it, I think I, I don't necessarily think blame Vince Junior for all that. I, he learned from his dad, and his dad was all about spectacle and wrestling as spectacle. In that case, you don't need that many maneuvers to make it work. However, yes, you are right that that people don't actually wrestle as much in mid eighties WWE stuff. It's like these days it's like. WWE's kind of caught up with all the other companies because they've kind of had to, but sort of in the 80s and 90s, they were very much like, right, we want you to do this, 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 and this, nothing else. You don't need to do that. We don't need you to do that. Just do this. And then you sort of see them outside of the WWF, and you sort of, you can't help sort of the things they can pull off and the things you can do, and they just say, why weren't you letting them do that? It's like, why get away with the bare minimum when they can continuously bring out new stuff to keep people interested? It just, it's always been one of those sort of logicals I struggle to understand. Like, don't get me wrong, I get the wrestling landscape was a hell of a lot different, like, a few decades back. But it just seems like you'd want to get the most out of your performers instead of putting them in boxes. It's like under the giant. Hey, have you ever seen a giant man put like someone in a like a technical hold? No, well you're not going to see it here because he's just a giant. No, it, I I can understand what you're saying. It feels like you're just giving every other company that you the advantage because you can basically let they will literally take the chance to go. Hey, remember that guy? What if I told you he can do all these things you've never seen him do? 
Don't, I mean, don't believe me? Watch this and find out. <laughs> it, well, yeah, you are right, but the wrestling context of what Vince Senior was doing is very different to the wrestling context of what Vince Junior was doing. The principle's the same, but you're right, it runs out of steam at a certain point. But for Vince Senior, it was very much the right thing to do. And for all those promoters in the 70s that Andre made a ton of money for, it was very much the right thing to do. Because no one else was going to see him, was they? (laughs) I guess I'm just one of those work red snobs I've heard so much about. (laughs) I don't know, I I just feel like you're handicapping yourself by like limiting what you let your wrestlers do like these days yeah you kind of have to sort of if they're going to be working x amount of days a year you don't want them taking horrific bumps every bloody night if they're going to have to work again in the morning it's (sighs) i can understand that i can absolutely understand that with what you're saying but yeah anyway let's move on to the big match of the well pretty much the last of the big matches in the AJPW run after building the Road Warriors up over a couple of years and like we said they they won the um, I think it was PWF Tag Team Championships bludging by this <laughs> after winning the PWF Tag Team Championships they go up against the NWA International Tag Team Champions okay, the right way around no the PWF Champions Jumbo Saruta and uh, um I'll go right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm looking at these tag teams. Who's tag team champions, what, where, when, and how in this. And this match was in 1985. So this was two fours to a finish for the NWA International Tag Team Championships. This isn't the match with uh, Yoshitatsu and Jumbo Saruta. I do apologize. I got confused. This is, they had the match in earlier on this that we saw where the Road Warriors had demolished uh, Tenaru and uh, Saruta, and this one's a lot more evenly based, isn't it? Yeah, very much. It does end in a squib finish, I believe, as well. Yeah, that was the bit that kind of disappointed me the most because, like, them up until that point, it had been a really intense one fall to a piece tag match, and Obviously, again, you've got both teams firing on all cylinders. They've worked with each other enough times now. They know what to push, what not to push, how to make, like, what to do, what not to do, and how to sort of bring the best out. And then all of a sudden, it just ends, and everyone's fighting in the ring, and the ref's falling over, and you're just like, what the f*** did I just see? (laughs) It's like the ref does a bloody pratfall. It's It's like someone's just, like, blown in his general direction he's fallen over like one of those sort of footballers in the bloody penalty box it's just like what the hell happened <laughs> but it is a bit of a corking match up to then i mean hawk and saruta are kind of ideally made for each other the purebred technical wrestler in the powerhouse and you know even their lockups are aggressive <laughs> it is I... one of the best examples of a tag match from its time period yeah, I mean, Saruta wasn't at his... Saruta's an interesting cat. I'll go. I'll, I'll rephrase that. Tenaru and Saruta are interesting cats because Saruta didn't really go that hard in the early to mid-80s when he was building his reputation. And then when the King's Road came along, he changed up a gear and suddenly became this heart-hitting legend that had these cracking matches with Stan Anson and Dan Spivey and Tenaru and 
you know, these incredible matches. And he was always good, but he just managed to up this gear when he got to his late 30s and suddenly became this incredible professional wrestler. And you're starting to see spots of that here where he's judging a crowd perfectly. He's not going at full ball, but he has to because it's Road Warriors. So he's going more full ball than he normally is in this particular time period. I watched a match with him and David Von Erich, and it was like watching a chess match. It was entertaining, but it was slow <laughs> and not very hard hitting. But these two uh, are hard hitting, but it's about showing off strength, technical wrestler against the powerhouse. So, and Tanner is much the same post. He did get a lot stiffer, a lot quicker than Saruta did. But it's it's an interesting approach, I think. Yeah, the the it's almost it's like I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this match because as you said, you've got the sort of separate elements wanting to play off against each other and then there's almost a chess match element to it, but it's more like if the pieces wore boxing gloves and you just punch each other off the board. <laughs> yeah. You see, them, you see them thinking about what they're going to do and then just deciding to sort of knock the lights out of the other. Yeah, definitely. But it is, it's a good match, it's, even though it's got a squib ending. It's well worth watching. I with that. Then there was the Road Warriors in Japan compilation, which uh, the second compilation, which has the same matches on the, as we discussed earlier. It repeats the matches that we've seen. So we'll not bother with talking with that. Shall we move on to Super World Sports? Or should we explain a bit what's happening in America that stopped them from going to Japan? Uh, I feel like we need that context because we've just time skipped to 1991. So, yeah. <clears throat> so in the late 80s in Japan, they moved from all Japan pro wrestlers. So in, in America, they moved from the AWA to the NWA. And they were one of the highest paid tag teams in the world. In fact, they were probably the highest paid tag team in the world. Jim Crockett Promotions tied them down to an exclusive contract. They were very, very happy. They didn't have to go to Japan anymore to make big bucks with Baba. They just kind of like hung around the NWA. They had big money feuds with the Horsemen, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express. They were making money hand over fist night after night. And they had big guaranteed money contracts. So they didn't really need to go to get the big paydays from Giant Baba. They had big money runs in the AWA with the Fabulous Freebirds, though not as big of money as they were supposed to have had because. They were supposed to have this big feud with the Freebirds, and Michael Hayes was trying to sell Vern Gagne on the idea of the Freebirds versus the Road Warriors. And Vern was like, but you're both heel teams. Nobody would want to see it. And, of course, they eventually did run out of ideas and decided to put them together two weeks before the Freebirds. Well, the Freebirds handed their notice in the night they first wrestled the Road Warriors. <laughs> wow. Like, you can't leave. Well, you, did, you didn't give us what we wanted. We're off. Um, they had the big money runners there. Then once they kind of played their card out in the AWA, they went to the NWA. Um, World Tag Team Champions there and had a run from around about 86 to 89, um, where they were the biggest, baddest tag team in the NWA. And they had that great era of NWA tag teams to work with. The, you know, uh, the Russians... The Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, the Horsemen, and then later on, Doom, the Steiners, the Skyscrapers. They were, they kind of 
panned the mid 80s technical tag team era to the early 90s powerhouse tag team era. And I think by the time they got to the end of the NWA run, where they were kind of like negotiated out to the WWE, they'd pretty much done everything in tag team wrestling you could do in the NWA. And you notice that the tag teams around them look an awful lot like they do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the skyscrapers were just tall versions of the Road Warriors. <laughs> Doom were kind of the African American version of the Road Warriors. It, there was a lot of similarities amongst the Steiners with the amateur wrestling version of the Road Warriors in one sense. A lot the, sorry? And a lot meaner. Yeah, and this was kind of like just the way it was. They kind of weren't as special as they used to be. And of course, there was that fact that in the WWE there was that tag team called Demolition who were big, angry men who wore face paint and shoulder pads. Hmm. <laughs> it also had one word, names. Yes. And of course, eventually, the Paul Ellering talked to Vincent Kennedy McMahon and the Road Warriors made their debut in the WWE and their first big feud was with Demolition. Um, which was described by Bobby Heenan as a curtain sellout. <laughs> I think the problem with like making your own tag formula is eventually people are going to cotton on to it, realize it's successful, and take it. And oh, that's yes. that's what kind of happened with the Road Warriors, because everyone saw what you can do with these sort of unique big characters, the giant bruisers, the sort of weird sort of fighting style that adopted between them and were like right well, we can do this with a different style of gimmick and as you said you had the skyscrapers doom demolition all trying to use the same formula and it kind of pushed the road warriors out of that nice spot they'd had yeah i mean don't get me wrong they were still the most popular tag team in the nwa and were well worth the money the crockett promotions were paying them but Equally, they weren't quite as impressive when they're no longer the biggest men in the room. You know, that's the thing. And you're right, absolutely right. Fabulous Kangaroos uh, invented the Australian style of tag team wrestling, but their entire gimmick was used by the internationals, and then it was used by the sheep herders, and then it was used by the New Zealand militia. You know, there's essentially. Tag teams sound convincing in the slightest. (laughs) But also. The Rock and Roll Express, you know, the Rock and Roll RPMs, the Rockers, the Fabulous Ones, the Fantastics, all of these pretty boy tag teams that came along in the 1980s and 90s. If you didn't have the Rock and Roll Express first, well, really, if you didn't have the Fabulous Ones first, none of them would have worked either, would they? It's funny we speak of the Rock and Roll Express. Ricky Martin just had one of the best matches of the collective. Yes, this is true against uh, Joey Teller. If you want to listen to more about the collective, me and Chelsea Spollen did look at the collective last week. Um, you can listen to our show where we looked at Big Effie's Big Gay Brunch, um, Bloodsport, and uh, For the Culture. And also, you can look at read-ups from all 12 shows on steelchair.com, written by yours truly over the course of three very, 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 very long night shifts. <laughs> There's been a lot of wrestling about. I watched 24 hours of wrestling last week in a week between the New Japan G1 Climax uh, final run and the collective shows. And you must have had some sleepless nights trying to catch up with that lot. 
<laughs> I was basically watching and writing them all live, and then I sort of got that up, went to sleep around eight nine a.m., woke up at two eight like two p.m. to catch the next day, and oh god, I loved Effie's get big gear brunch, but trying to watch it with a migraine was very Ooh. difficult. Oh, not nice. Anyway, back to the Road Warriors and their history in North America. Of course, as Jim Hurd takes over WCW and employees start dropping like proverbial flies because no one actually wants to work for Jim Hurd because he was the pizza guy, um, the Road Warriors decide to part company with WCW in late 1989 and decide to talk to Vincent Kennedy McMahon where they end up. And like we said, that first feud with Demolition. They quickly rise to the top of the tag team champion tag team ranks within the next 18 months and, of course, win the world tag team champions from the Nasty Boys at SummerSlam. Now, um, meanwhile, Jinichiro Tenryu, who was their old opponent in All Japan Pro Wrestling, leaves All Japan and starts Super World Sports, a company we've talked a lot about on the Troopany Show History of Japanese Wrestling, which he founded with the help of an optical lens company and one certain Vince McMahon, who didn't really want to see a Japanese domination by all Japan and New Japan Pro Wrestling and wanted to have a foothold in the Japanese market in the early 90s. And after co-promoting with both Antonio Noki and Giant Baba, decided Tenru, this new independent company, was the right people to talk to. And they did a massive show at the Tokyo Dome, uh, the SWS and WWF show, which kind of like opened up the relationship which I think had Hulk Hogan versus Genichiro Tenryu on top. Um, and this match was the tag team title match for the WWE at the time was the Legion of Doom, like we said, just previously won it the previous summer at um, SummerSlam, and they were wrestling the natural disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, John Tenter, and Uncle Fred Ottman. <laughs> That's what Cody Rhodes calls him, Uncle Fred. Um, and this was on the 12th of December 1991, so literally three weeks before the Tokyo Dome show for New Japan, which that year would have been headlined by, if I remember correctly, if that was 91, that would have been headlined by Ric Flair and Tatsumi Fujinami. <laughs> so yeah, you've got some competition there. But yeah, this was the Road Warriors coming back to Japan for the first time in a long time, certainly since they'd run in all Japan pro wrestling. One thing you do get on this, the SWS event, is the Road Warriors coming out to Iron Man by, of course, Black Sabbath, because that was their original theme tune, which they didn't use in the WWE for obvious reasons, because it would have cost a lot of money. I can't Was it you that said but, um, like the Road Warriors use Iron Man because they were clever enough to get two pops out of it? One when the initial and then once when it goes into like its main sort of riff I can't yeah. remember, I think that I was don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it was me or not but you do get that like initial where Tony O'Army plays with the pitch of the strings behind the nut for guitarists there <laughs> on his SG um, and that kind of gives you the initial hit and then you've got the dun dun yeah. dun and dun. the crowd will always pop twice for it yeah. God, I can't remember who I heard that from now. It's gonna but it's be true, but it, it is the it's the Road Warrior pop. That's and you got bigger Road Warrior pops in Japan than I think you did in North America because the crowds were bigger at the time. And again, I don't know the song iconic about hearing that ooh, what a rush as it bloody kicks in. 
Jim Johnson's a music genius though as well equally that that was one of his best pieces it matched them perfectly it didn't get too far away from the formula of Iron Man with still being refreshing and new and there they are bright orange shoulder pads tag belts face paint we all know and love and the crowd just eating it up yeah the, ic- the road warriors the iconic legion of doom I would say Legion of Doom rather than Road Warriors because, of course, it was WWE or WWF at the time. And I think that's the interesting thing for me is the LOD were slightly different to the Road Warriors. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. I just always knew them as the Road Warriors. Like, even when I was watching it as a kid, I still just called them the Road Warriors. I, it never cottoned to me until I was older that they were called the Legion of Doom. Yeah. I mean, their original name in Georgia, they were part of Jake Roberts' faction, the Legion of Doom. And the reason why they used it in in WWF was because the Road Warriors were synonymous with the NWA and the AWA. Um, they started calling the Road Warriors again later in their run because it's the frigging Road Warriors. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was... Um, I, think it, I think the Legion of Doom in the WWE was slightly more formulaic. They didn't have to do as much. Things were a bit easier for them. Yeah. And the really hot tag teams of the 1980s that you could have had dream matches with just weren't there anymore. The Hart Foundation broke up just as they got there. They had one match together, which is available on... Probably able to find it on the network. It was a house show match they actually did on video. And it's a corker. It's an absolute corker. Well, this match is more of a brawl. Well, what we see from this is more of a brawl than anything. Yeah, I mean, Fred Ottman, like, Typhoon and Earthquake are good hands. You know, they can wrestle, they can go. They're not, like, you know, Luthes or anything. No, I mean, they're literally just picking up chairs and hitting each other with them. Yeah, but it is, they're very good brawlers. I'm looking at the full length of this video is... Six minutes and 45 seconds, and it's exactly 13 minutes and 13 seconds before there's any bodily contact. So this match did actually last less, less, less shorter than the introductions. I don't think you actually see the finish to this. It's literally, it literally just cuts out at random. Apparently a 60-minute time limit on this particular match. That was wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, they they went to a time limit draw between these no, two teams. No, I was just saying sixty minute time limit. The sixty minute time limit would have been wishful thinking for these two teams. Oh yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we see the full match here. It's because it's like no. three minutes of entrances and then three minutes of like brawling and just a little bit of wrestling. Ah, you can go into the second video. There is a second video actually. Which uh, gives you the second part of the match. You can follow on. Which is another 6 minutes and 43 seconds long. Once they get back in the ring after they've fallen out of the ring. Yeah. yeah. I'll put that in the playlist as well. And they have that sumo moment with uh, John Tenter and uh, Animal. And they're clearly calling spots as they go through it as well. Which is not good. I just find it slightly sad that the first comment on the the video is just, who remembers when Typhoon was tugboat? <laughs> I, I do. Don't, I don't think he really wants to remember it, to be honest. 
No, I mean, to be fair to Fred, he had an awful lot of terrible gimmicks. Not as many as John Tenter, who used to actually go... John Tenter is sadly no longer with us. He passed away from cancer about 15 years ago. But he used to go on the Wrestle Crap Forum to discuss his favourite worst gimmicks that he had. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about like how much fun he used to have, just talking about the weird things he'd have to do. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, this is a bit of a lumbering brawl. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's kind of classic WWE era of the time. It takes you back to the back in the day without it being really anything exciting, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just a bit dull. Yeah. Now, the following summer, of course, the Road Warriors would lose the tag team titles and eventually they would end up with Money Incorporated and Money Incorporated would uh, face the Road Warriors at SummerSlam 1992 in Wembley Stadium. Um at uh, in in London and would take the tag team titles back and then Hawk would decide he didn't have enough and would quit uh, the WWE whilst Animal was still world tag team champion so that was a bit awkward and Hawk decided to go to New Japan Pro Wrestling where he started a tag team with the venerable Kensuke Sasaki now we do have uh, one of their matches on this playlist and as we were discussing before we started this show um, there's not a lot of the Hellraiser stuff on YouTube anymore because, of course, there's New Japan World now, which carries a lot of this stuff. Um, this is an interesting tag team title match from 1993, June. So a lot's happened in these two years since they left the NWA. Um, Hawk is tagging with Kensuke Sasaki. It really elevated Sasaki an awful lot uh, from being a very good wrestler to being an exceptionally well-known and very much respected professional wrestler. They're defending the titles here against the absolutely crazy team of Tony Holm and Bobby Eaton. Because that works, and they got a world tag team title shot. I don't know what they were on. Is it Um, just me, or is uh, Tony Holm just not very good? Tony Holm was a boxer from Finland. And he was kind of one of those projects of the New Japan Dojo, really. Um, they wanted somebody who could hit really hard. And by gum, Tony Elm could hit really hard. <laughs> this match is really clumsy. Oh, yeah, he is. He spent a lot of time wrestling Scott Norton and Shinya Hashimoto, who kicked the seven bells of shit out of him on a regular basis. Um, just to try and square him up a bit and, and bring him in line with reality. Um, there's, some, there's some classic big man matches with him, with him in singles matches. He's a much better singles wrestler than he is a tag wrestler uh, because obviously if you've got one guy can hide all of his issues. <laughs> yeah, he just he didn't... Every time he was in the ring it was just kind of awkward. I was just there like, oh, this, this, this isn't very good, is it? No, but they did partner him up with Bobby Eaton who arguably is one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. Yeah, but he's never in the ring enough to hide the fact that Harm isn't very good. <laughs> he did. No, no offense to you, Tony. You seem like a nice guy, but no. Tony Harley did have a run in the WWE not long after this as Ludwig Borka, a a Finnish nationalist person uh, and foreign bad guy. TM. Um, he didn't really play on the nationalism here, which is kind of a big dude to hit people quite hard. Um, yeah. Sorry? 
As you said, yeah. Agreeing <laughs> with you. I would also point out that Tony Harm and Bobby Eaton stood side by side could reflect the sun forever. Probably, yes. Yeah, so to be fair, you're probably enjoying the fact that Bobby Eaton just has a mullet. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bobby Eaton's mullet deserves a podcast unto itself. By the way, Terry Funk's Pontash mullet combo in the first match <laughs> of this particular playlist is quite the thing. It, it's a style icon of this or any other era. I'm surprised you didn't mention it sooner. I, I got so well, we got talking. <laughs> I'm just watching Kitsuki Sasaki drop delivering drop kicks. Sasaki yeah. really wasn't he was power warrior, so it's Hawk Animal and Power. Um and the Hellraisers were they had a lot of magic and I think it revitalized Hawk a lot. You know, Sasaki was a corking wrestler, a brilliant, brilliant wrestler, and of course would go on to marry Akira Hokuto, thus making one of the greatest men alive. <laughs> but um at this point in his career he was still young and he was still fresh. He'd come off the tag team with Hirohase where they'd had that massive feud with the Steiners which had established him as a tag team wrestler and then tagging with Hawk really pushed him to a different level. Yeah, the, like all the sort of oddity of it, the Hellraisers are actually really damn good. And there were some good tag teams around at the time. Scott Norton and Hercules Hernandez as the Jurassic Powers which is the weirdest name for a tag team ever. <laughs> I, I don't know. You you mentioned a tag team with the word kangaroo in it earlier. That that seems weirder than the Jurassic Powers to me. The oh, fabulous. God, what the? F- what are you looking at? Remember when I said uh, Horn was really awkward? He's just completely botched, like uh, getting thrown out the ring. Like he's oh, just yeah. clattered into the like bottom and middle rope and probably <laughs> damaged his knee. Probably. He was incredibly green at this point. Like, really, really green. And it was one of those classic things of, like, he had great matches with great wrestlers like Scott Norton and Shinra Hashimoto and Keiji Muto and Big Van Vader. And, of course, get signed to the WWE. Oh, yeah, I see now. Then get signed to the WWE. And I assume they thought he was really good. <laughs> well, I mean, Hawk's just taken a pile driver quite nastily, but I've just realised it so he can do a pop up instantly and no sell it. Yes, that was, which was a signature Road Warriors move as well. I do like the fact that Bobby Eaton came in to help Tony Halm out after he botched that leaving the ring. Um, yeah, it, there, there was the Memphis. Did you know the story of the Memphis pile driver? I, I've heard bits of it, but I'm not sure I've heard the full thing. So the the pile driver is banned in Memphis because it may damn near kill a man uh, because that was to our drama. And if you, you know, uh, Jerry Lawler's finisher was the pile driver. And if you banned it, you knew it had to be serious if he used it. You know, that that was the kind of thing. So on their debut in Memphis on Monday night at the Coliseum, they're wrestling Bull Dundee and Jerry Lawler. You know, they've, they've built up this big match and the referee gets bumped to the outside. So Lawler and Dundee see their moment and deliver double pile drivers to the Road Warriors who promptly just stand straight up and the entire crowd is aghast. Yeah, which that's is good. an awesome spot. Yeah, because they protected the pile driver for so long that it made everything, made the crowd go crazy when somebody actually just no-sold it. Okay, Harms just made the funniest tag I've ever seen. I've no doubt see it in a moment. 
I'm a couple of seconds behind you. But yeah, I'd love to see. He, he basically hits Eaton in the balls as he's tagging in because Eaton's just been thrown over the ropes. <clears throat> yeah. I'd love seeing Bobby Eaton and Kensuke Sasaki in a singles match. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, they've got a lot of chemistry together and they both sort of got a similar sort of height and style. So I feel like they'd probably put on quite the classic match. Yeah, that would be ace. <laughs> just like Tony Alamadis, yeah. He did actually just tag him in the dick and then um, goes in and then, then berates him for not being on the apron so he's ready for a tag. And it's like, he just went over the top rope. Give him a chance. See what I mean? Uh, he's just awkward as this this dangerous alliance Tony Holm marriage is not going to last long, I don't think. I said I want Eaton to kick his head off and storm <laughs> out. <laughs> you deserve better, Eaton. Bob Eaton always deserved better. <laughs> and Hawk's just about to murder both of them, except Holm didn't go down. There we go. Sasaki's just smacked his jaw off. And Suki Sasaki kicking out of the Alabama jam, though. That's just not fair. Yeah. Dude, that's yeah. his finisher. You should protect that. <laughs> yeah, and then we get down to it. Yeah, into the big brawl. Oh, that that's was just... my uh, favourite moment of the match, actually. Because they're about to finish eating off with the Doomsday device. And they realise that Holm hasn't gotten out of the ring. So they both just run over and punch him in the face. <laughs> it's like get out the ring you idiot <laughs> and Halm is no selling everything I mean like Sasaki just taking his head off with a clothesline oh and there's that New York documentary kicking in oh yeah for those of you I will take this off the list but I, I put the um, famous uh, New York American experience documentary on the end of this list by accident and uh, John's enjoying it <laughs> <laughs> It's like, hey, you can learn about the, the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom, the Hellraisers, and Wall Street. Yes, and, and how Central Park was made, and uh, New York during the Civil War. Uh, we should finish off the story of the Road Warriors, though. Um, of course, after the Hellraisers, um, Hawk and Animal did reunite and did some matches together in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, again, you'll probably find those on New Japan World. And, of course, went back to WCW and then WWE and then LOD 2000 and Sonny and, ah, you know the rest. Heidenreich <laughs> and... Heidenreich and all sorts of stuff. The horrible, uh, horrible story around Hawk's drug problems, which were not fun. Oh, was uh, it al- no, it was alcoholism, wasn't it? Alcoholism. And then, of course, Hawk passed away because of a heart attack and Animal left, was left on his own. And Animal did actually go back to tag with Kensuke Sasaki in New Japan in a tag team called the Hell Warriors, and which remarkably had, um, uh, because obviously the Road Warriors came out to Iron Man, and the Hellraisers came out to Hellraiser by Ozzy Osbourne, and Ozzy Osbourne specifically mixed them, a version of Iron Man mixed with Hellraiser as their intro music. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that was I've it. never heard that remix. I'm going to have to look that up now. I'm, I'm sure it happened. I'm, I'm pretty sure it happened. I didn't just dream it. But yeah, so that was that was the Hell Warriors, uh, which I couldn't find any footage of. What's your thoughts on the Road Warriors in Japan, John? What, what's kind of the takeaways you've got from this? 
It's like the Road Warriors were perfect for Japan, especially when they were first sort of coming into the scene. They had the perfect look, the perfect style, and the perfect sort of stature to mix it up with like the bigger guys in Japan. The fact all Japan brought them in had them sort of work their style alongside the sort of style all Japan was using at the time, found it meshed, and yeah, they took the ball and ran with it. Like, you see so many people sometimes go to Japan and flounder. The Road Warriors kind of made it work for them. And obviously the crowd loved them. They had all these documentaries and stuff made about them. They had these amazing matches. It's Honestly, it's just good to see that like they were great even before like they hit the big screens of America. Yeah, I do. I mean, I mean you could argue the NWA and certainly the AWA were the big screens of America too, but WWF was international fame on a much greater level they would not have received if they had stayed in Crockett Promotions or they'd stayed in Minnesota. I'm one uh, of those hideous things people call millennials, so I only ever saw the Road Warriors in the WWF and the WWE and on tapes and that. I'd heard about them going to Japan, but I'd not really seen much of it bar the things I'd seen on New Japan World. Yeah. So to sort of go back and see some of these older matches from all Japan before they'd even found like their signature like Legion of Doom Road Warriors style and see that they were still kicking ass is really good to see it really is it, it, all the formula is there the doomsday device isn't there yet that won't come until the late 80s but the actual they didn't need a finisher they were just that tough and it just looked right and it just worked and that's what made the road warriors great and certainly i think it did have an impression upon the king's road style of pro wrestling that would come later on that stiffness and that toughness and that no selling, really. You know, just stand there and take it offense was a really big influence on all Japan in the long run. 100%. Mm. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Troopany show today. This has been the Beginner's Guide to Japanese Wrestling, and we talked about the Road Warriors in Japan. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. John Dinsdale of Steel Chair Magazine. Thank you for having me. Where can we find you on the internet, John? Well, you can find me at John Deathman on Twitter. That is the portal to the hell that is my writing, the death matches, the gore, the horror, the violence, everything you want for Halloween. And <laughs> speaking of, I've been doing the 31 Days of Death Match. It's the second annual advent calendar up to Halloween with Mr. Troopany himself offering up a contribution this year that will be out in a few days. It will indeed. I finished that yesterday morning. And it's one of my favorite all-time matches, and certainly one of my favorite death matches. But we'll leave that surprise there. But yeah, you can read my writing there. So I've got a coffee thing. It's just a tip jar type thing. There's bloody links to writing. And yeah, you'll occasionally see me give a really bad opinion on something, probably. Usually a match people liked. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a wacky world on Twitter. That is coffee, K-O-F-I, not actual cups of coffee. I would love them as well. There you go. Maybe you should buy John a Starbucks card for Christmas. I don't even think my town has a Starbucks anymore. Or a Costa. Or a... three of them. Greg's voucher? 
<laughs> Anywho, thank you very much for listening to us today. My name is James Troopany. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter, and you can find us on Patreon and the Facebook The Troopany Show, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. We'll be back next week with a different subject entirely, which it might be New Japan Pro Wrestling because I understand there's a big card, but that might be in November. There was, by the way, just as a little add-on, one of the best six-man tag team matches I have ever seen on the Crook and Hall show from Friday, uh, which was the Never Openweight Six-Man Tag Team Championship match between Suzuki Gun. Dangerous Techers and Duki versus Yoshihashi, Hiroki Goto, and Tomohiro Ishii. It's brilliant. It's better than the two matches they had with Okada, Yano, and Sho in the summer. It's just absolutely stunning and might actually be match of the year. Um, I, I cannot sell it enough. And it's all based around Duki and Yoshihashi hating each other. And that was a main event of a New Japan show. And that's where we are in 2020. <laughs> and looking at everything New Japan's done this year, it it it, it doesn't surprise me. It's, no, it's been a weird year. The fans were absolutely hot for it. I've not heard like in the COVID era, I've not heard fans as hot for anything at Kyoriken Hall as that I've heard for that. So I suggest, strongly suggest you go watch it. And um, well, I'm not telling you result. You should go watch it. There you go. I'll not spoil it for you. It's really I good. I kind of derailed all your G1 plans when I fell behind on it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We did, I did enough G1. I talked enough about the G1 last week. I did 80, 19 shows on it. There's plenty for people to listen to. <laughs> and I'm going to do, as per requested, I'm actually going to do the entire World Tag League in the same format. Little 10 minute shows every day. Yeah, but that means you have to watch Tag League. Well, we've never done it before, you see. We've done Best of Super Juniors before, and obviously we do the G1 every year. And every year we've gone, ah, World Tag League. But last year's final was one of the best ever, so I want to watch it again. Because, <laughs> like, last year it was uh, Finjuice and G.O.D. in the final, and it was brilliant. And it was like, this were really into it, so it's like, I should do that again. So, yeah. So we'll do it again. Anywho... For now, thank you very much for listening today, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.